Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. It is the sense that lobbyists don't do anything. They don't achieve much. They don't work particularly hard. They don't understand their countries. They don't understand their interests. I see that in, in Ukraine. There's an old Washington cliche. If you're not at the table, then you're probably on the menu. Tonight, I'm here to find out what it's like for a DC lobbyist trying to get a seat. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I'll have another uh, rye Manhattan when you get a second. Yeah. Do you mind if I order one of those? We're at Fig and Olive, an upscale Mediterranean restaurant near K Street between the Capitol and the White House. I think it's in your interest for me to have one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make it a double. Yeah. Dan Vidich is a regular. What do you recommend? I'm going to just keep it light, go with the octopus. Oh, that um, sounds good, actually. Yeah, it is. Dan's been working for years to convince U.S. lawmakers that the way to defend Ukraine from Russia was through energy pipelines. That's why I keep going back to, to energy, um, to use, you know, that, that trite uh, Bill Clinton phrase, it's, 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 it's the energy sector, stupid. <laughs> and now, he's spending most of his time lobbying for missiles and fighter jets. So you were doing this before it was cool, and a lot of the reporting recently is about other lobbying firms, whether for completely transactional, cynical, political reasons, jumping in to help the Zelensky government or because out of genuine like patriotic duty or they're horrified about what's happening uh, in Ukraine. But you've been in this space for a while now. And I want you to tell us a little bit about how you started. And I know there's a lot there, but like, let's, let's talk about the last five years, which has been a wild ride <laughs> for the Ukrainian government. Look, I've been working, you know, in and around Ukraine for, you know, 10 years, even though I've been working with um, the Ukrainians directly for five years. And, and when I say the Ukrainians, I have to be specific there. So, you know, we've worked with the, the, the energy industry, the state-owned energy industry. Yeah. It's 100% state-owned? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, not the entire energy industry, but the, the our, our clients, right. You know, I'm not telling the Department of Justice here something that they don't know or understand. I mean, th these are state-owned companies with relationships with, um, you guessed it, the state. I want you to just give us a little bit of a flavor of the, the culture of Ukraine lobbying since the war started. What happens when these other firms parachute in to try and help out? I'll tell you a, an anecdote, and I can't use names. Can or can't? Cannot. Okay. There's a Capitol Hill staffer several months ago who met with a, I'll call them a Russian lobbyist working for Nord Stream 2, because okay. they were working for, for Gazprom. Yeah. And this person, you know, approached the staffer, who's really smart, decent guy, who's done a lot for, I'd say, Europe policy in general. Yeah. And, you know, this person, you know, is is meeting with this Nord Stream 2, or this Russian lobbyist, knowing that they are a Russian lobbyist. Yeah. But this person, he or she, is is doing that to, to basically understand their arguments, right? 
So it's it's oppo research, opposition research. Yeah. And the the Nord Stream two lobbyist, the Russian lobbyist, says to this person, I, I'm just trying to you know get a sense of where you are on this. You know, I'm not trying to, to advocate anything. We love Ukraine. My firm loves Ukraine because they've had a lot of Ukraine clients in the yeah. past. What he means by that, of course, is he, he, he loves the, the clients that come from Ukraine. He's working for the Russians yeah. saying we love Ukraine. So I, I get lots of stories and anecdotes like this about In other the, words, reframing things in terms of... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I get lots of stories and anecdotes like this from, from folks in government and the executive branch on Capitol Hill, in the media as well, about you know, some of the Russian lobbyists and how they've approached them for years. Yeah. And you know, what the Russian lobbyists don't understand is that there are people laughing behind their backs. You know, at the end of the day, people who are currently in government yeah. You know, not taking them seriously, but at the end of the day, you know, they're still getting paid, so I guess I suppose they don't care. But how has this changed? Look, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but some of the same firms that are now trying to offer pro bono services to the Ukrainians have worked for Russian interests in the past. Some of them, maybe not all of them, but some of them are trying to whitewash that. I think the Ukrainian government, um, you know, after everything that's happened with respect to, to, to lobbyists, um, I, I, I don't see any Ukrainian government going back to having, you know, formal lobbyists. So, they you know, all, burned by that I think all these folks who are, you know, knocking on the door, whether for, you know, uh, genuine, sincere or, or not so sincere reasons, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't think that the Ukrainians are going are gonna to welcome them. Just explain quickly for people who don't know what you're referring to. What, what, why does the Ukrainian government feel so burned by America's K Street? Well, look, I mean, it does fundamentally go, go to, back to Paul Manafort and, and that experience. <laughs> yeah. um, call it an experience. It was, it was an experience not just for Ukraine, but for, for our country, too. But, but, it, but it's not just that. It's, it's look, it's... It is the sense, the belief, and this isn't just in Ukraine, yeah. that lobbyists don't do anything. That they actually don't, they don't achieve much. Yeah. They don't work particularly hard. <laughs> they don't understand their interests. I see that in, 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 in Ukraine. I see it in a lot of different countries. And you know, part of the reason why I, I also started Yorktown and rather than trying to join another firm was, you know, I didn't want to be associated with that. You know, we really wanted to do something, something different. What is it like once Ukraine is invaded and what they need from Washington changes quite a bit? Asking for sanctions is, you know, no longer an issue. Everyone's got religion on sanctions. Still an issue. Still an issue in terms of certain things. Okay, fair enough. But so what's, what is, how does your agenda change? What do they ask you to do? Well, again, the Ukrainian government doesn't ask us to do anything. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not directed uh, by the Ukrainian government. They're, they're not our client. Um, we talk to them. So things change and they don't change. I'll tell you how they don't change. Yeah. It's still all about energy. So what we're explaining to people is all of the sanctions that have been deployed thus far, even the more consequential ones. Yeah. And I don't think any of them are decisive, by the way. I mean, that's empirical. Look, look has, has Russia stopped? No. Um, but, you know, all the sanctions that have been deployed, they don't matter at the end of the day. What matters for, for Putin and the Kremlin is energy. 
because his belief is that the West is so dependent on Russian energy that yeah. he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. And until we sow some doubt, and by the way, the president has done that recently by banning oil and gas, Russian oil and gas imports into yeah. the United States. Yeah. It's not consequential um, financially yeah. for, the, for the Russians, but it opens the door to what I'm talking about. As soon as people in the Kremlin, not just Putin, but the people he surrounds himself with, yeah. um, realize that we are serious about going after Russian energy, they will internalize that and, and it'll it'll affect their, their decision-making and their cost-benefit calculus in Ukraine and, you know, potentially elsewhere. Yeah. So what we've been advocating for on the energy side is, look, there's a model here that's not precise, but I think is applicable. I think that Russia at this point is more of a rogue state, rogue nation, rogue country, uh, even more so than Iran or, or North Korea in terms of what it's done and, the, and its ability to, to actually you know, destabilize the world in, in yeah. really serious ways. I mean, this is a, a historical inflection point, you know, that, that North Korea or, or Iran really necessarily couldn't create. Right, right. I mean, they could obviously for Israel, they could for South Korea. Right, but they're not a, a global nuclear power. Yeah. Right, yeah. correct. Yeah. So this is different. But there's a template there with Iran. Look, we sanctioned the Iranian, um, I should say Congress, sanctioned the Iranian financial sector with secondary financial sanctions. What that means is that, you know, we sanctioned Iranian banks and for any financial institution, whether it's in Europe, the United States, India, China, that does business with that Iranian financial institution, they can't do business with the United States. That has deterred every significant financial institution in the world from, from engaging with the Iranians. Yeah. We need to do the same with the Russians. So, you know, people talk about what we've done with the central bank. We've taken some of their reserves. We've de-swifted, you know, a few, you know, second-tier banks. Um, we've blocked a few first-tier banks here, but we've only blocked their property. The sort of sanctions I'm talking about would deter other financial institutions around the world from engaging with the Russians. We haven't done that yet, and we did that with Iran. Yeah, with Russia they could, yeah. With Iran they, they, they did it. I mean, this was Congress did this, I mean, around 2011. So have you been part of the discussions over the Ukraine security package that's a part of the omnibus, either on the sanctions or on additional security assistance? I would say Senator Toomey, the um, the ranking member of the senior Republican on the banking committee, is, is pushing for these sanctions. He's pushing these sanctions that yep. you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're, we're really grateful uh, yeah. for him uh, doing that. We, we, we met with him recently. Um, he, he understands, you know, yeah. the consequences of this, but he also understands the importance of this. The, the sanctions infrastructure that we need to create, this is the foundation, the financial sanctions. What do you do after that on the energy side? Just as with, with Iran, we create these escrow accounts yeah. in, in various countries and markets around the world where the Russians are, you know, they can continue to sell their, their oil and gas, yeah. but all or at least some of that money goes into these escrow accounts. And we hold that until the Russians withdraw from Ukraine and, you know, possibly engage in other forms of, of behavior change. Yeah. You know, so, so this is a model that I think is even more applicable in, in the case of Russia than, than in some, you know, some would argue that in the case of Iran. What are the counter arguments? Well, um, 
that you that Europe in particular can't sustain a cutoff of Russian oil and gas. Well, on gas, we don't think that that's true. They're um, first of all, it's the end of the winter. They don't need right. gas right now. Right now, right. winter's over. Yeah. They have seven months, and we have seven months to work with them to build up their reserves for the next winter. They have over 150 billion cubic meters of import um, uh, capacity. That's more than what Russia exports to Europe. Uh, so, you know, that combined with possibly looking at a few other energy resources on, on the gas side, because you can transition gas to other forms of energy. It doesn't have to, you know, you can look at coal temporarily. You can look at nuclear. nuclear I know yeah, that those are yeah. difficult issues. Yeah. And I'm not someone who disagrees necessarily with Europe or, or our own energy transition or, you know, our, our movement towards renewable. But we cannot subjugate ideology and ambition in the renewable space to geopolitics right now, at least not for the next 12, 24 months. You're talking about, like, Germany using more nuclear and coal. That's not something that the Biden administration controls. So this is where I go back to their flawed philosophy from the past, the yeah. recent past, where I, I, I try not to, to, to focus on it or dwell on it. But they, they continue, quite frankly, to subjugate a lot of U.S. policy to, to, to Germany and what, what the Germans would or wouldn't do. I mean, up until this point, the Germans have been willing to do nothing. Right. Now they're doing something. But it, but it, but it. Look at Kharkiv. Look at Ukraine. Look at um, Kiev. Look at uh, Mariupol. That's what it took for the Germans to come to the realization that they needed to do these things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. do you really want to continue to pursue a policy whereby you're saying we need to be lo in lockstep with the Germans when it took them this long right. to get to this point? Yeah. Everyone seems to be pretty impressed with the speed at which the Germany's changed. A lot of policies. I am. Yeah. But that only speaks to how low the expectations were. So when you when you first start, what are their um, what are their main issues that you're that you're lobbying on at the beginning of this relationship? Well, they they say, look, um, several years ago, uh, the Kremlin built this pipeline called Nord Stream One. That pipeline has no commercial purpose. Our gas transit system has more than enough capacity to carry all Russian gas to Europe. But they built this in order to take away part of that from us. It went directly to Germany. And now they're building two other diversionary pipelines, one called Nord Stream 2 and the other called Turkstream. And they said, look, you know what the purpose of this is. This, is, this has nothing to do with gas. This has nothing to do with energy. This is about Putin isolating Ukraine so that he does not depend on Ukraine for billions of dollars worth in, uh, of, of gas transit and gas sales to European markets. If we lose that, we lose our primary deterrent against Russian escalated aggression. Throughout this process, the other side, and I, I define them collectively as the, the German government, um, and, you know, the, 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 the Russian lobbyists. I mean, yeah. Nord Stream 2, AG, um, is a Gazprom subsidiary, had multiple firms in town. Um, the Western companies, energy companies that were loaning money to, to Gazprom at 13%, by the way, you know, pretty significant. 
when Gazprom could go to, to you know, uh, go to capital markets and raise the same money for 4%. So that gave you a little bit of a sense of what the purpose was. They were doing what they were paid to they do. They were playing the system and they understood that having those, even if they have to pay 13%, having them on their side in this lobbying battle was huge. That's what they were paying it. for. Yeah. That's what they were paying for. Yeah. Although, right, yeah. Yeah. To create this veneer of legitimacy. What you're describing is a very, is this sort of like David versus Goliath DC battle where it's like Putin, Germany, some Western energy companies, yeah, but you, you know, know what? oligarchs Ryan, against we, the scrappy, yeah, exactly. like, de we, you know, Democratic upstarts and, you know, Yorktown yeah. lobbying for it. That's the reality and it's still the reality. Um, but we beat them on Nord Stream 2. I mean, this wasn't just about Ukraine. Tell us about some of the key battles over Nord Stream 2. You know, when we would talk about Nord Stream 2, everyone, everyone, literally, Democrat, Republican, would say, we, we support Ukraine. We're against this pipeline. And my answer would be, and? Yeah. To use Zelensky's words, a lot of nice words, but no action. Yeah. Um, and so we faced that for a couple of years. And what changed? Um, an idea. What do the Russians need technologically that they don't have? Yeah. Um, and we worked with, with our Ukrainian partners, including a think tank in Kyiv, to figure that out. They, they didn't have the right pipeline vessels. Pipeline? Pipeline vessels. Laying vessels, okay. That we would sanction the provision of those pipeline vessels and related services for Nord Stream 2, you know, and r other Russian energy export pipelines, yeah. of which really Nord Stream 2 was the only one, because Turk Stream at that point had been physically completed. Got it. So you've really about Nord Stream 2. And that also battle the, sort of lost already. And also, yeah, and also Nord Stream 2 was over three times larger. But we, we took that principle and we worked with Senator Shaheen and, and Senator Cruz, both of them. Yeah. Um, and we, we moved that legislation, which wasn't easy, because you had the Germans saying, and their lobbyists, the Russian lobbyists, saying, don't sanction German entities. Well, there, there were no German entities that were being sanctioned. But it was, it, was, it was a device and a mechanism that they used throughout this process until two weeks ago, literally until two weeks ago, to, the to argue that you, know, you don't want to sanction Western, Western companies. You don't want to sanction German companies. That, that's going to be a rupture in the transatlantic relationship. That's a serious argument that you had to deal with, I assume. That's not a frivolous argument. We dealt with it in 2019. We got this bill unanimously out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. We got it out of the Foreign Relations Committee on the Senate side, 20 to 2. Who are the two? Remember? Uh, Rand Paul, of oh, course. Of course, yeah. And uh, Merkley. Pretty much everyone, almost everyone, all of the, the senior politicals in the Trump administration uh, were with us and wanted this to happen and were pushing for it, with the exception of the leadership of the Treasury Department. And Steve Mnuchin, you can just say his name. And that's why, <laughs> that's why it didn't happen. Uh, what was Mnuchin's argument? Was I don't know for a fact. German. I don't know for a fact, well, but but the, yeah. the the speculation that I had heard at the time was um, that the Treasury Department and its leadership wanted to cut a deal with the Germans on trade, and that part of that 
a part of that deal would have been that the ask of the Germans was Nord Stream 2. Don't sanction Nord Stream 2. This was when Trump was pursuing a lot of bilateral trade. Uh, yeah, he was threatening auto tariffs. Yeah. Right? He yeah. wanted to deal with Europe. Yeah. My perspective at that, that time, and even now reflecting on it, is someone should have told the Treasury Department that Germany doesn't control Europe's trade policy. The European Commission does. We had the Germans, we had three Russian-backed uh, lobby firms, and we had the, 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 the Treasury Department at this time lobbying against it. Against it. That's a pretty impressive victory. Honestly, I mean, I look at Kharkiv now and, you know, I look at Kiev and I look at Mariupol and, um, you know, yeah, can't say that it was a, a victory. At that time, it was definitely a victory. Sometimes when I read um, your name in the paper, you're described as being close to the Zelensky government and a Ukraine lobbyist. But your client, in this case, is, of course, the, the energy company itself. Correct. So sometimes maybe it's just reporters getting this wrong and, and missing this nuance. But um, is there a pretty big distinction between the state and the interests of the state and the interests of uh, your energy client? Or do you see them as almost always fully aligned? And does it change but over the th five th years? There can be yeah. for, for them within Ukraine. Yeah. Um, but externally, on the, the macro issues that we work on, they're aligned. Yeah. Right, so like opposition to Nord Stream 2. Yeah. There's no government, daylight. Government, Naftagaz, others, there's yeah. complete alignment. Um, yeah. So, you know, for us, um, the differences that may exist domestically, yeah. you know, I can't say that we haven't felt at all, but, you yeah. know, we've, we've largely been insulated from because of the you know, the, the sort of policies that we work on, they're in the national interests of Ukraine as a country, and it's hard for anyone at Naftagaz, regardless of who the CEO is, or anyone, you know, in government, regardless of who the president is, to, to disagree with, with what we're doing. One thing I need you to explain for people to understand, and I mean myself, what does it mean to sanction these companies? There are some actors that don't have, obviously don't care if the U.S. sanctions them. They're, they might be insulated. And... I guess what you're saying is these companies cared. They did enough business with the United States that it mattered? Some of them did. I mean, with U.S. sanctions policy, the sanctions that are, that are actually enacted, um, they're not actually used. What, what they do is they, they cause commercial actors to reorient themselves in order not to get sanctioned. So... The company in charge of the construction, this Gazprom subsidiary, 100% owned by Gazprom, but registered in Switzerland. Um, in order for that company to be able to construct the pipeline and to, to, to operate it, it has to have all of these contracts with these, these European firms. Otherwise, it can't finish or operate the pipeline. So if you're deterring and disincentivizing those those European companies from engaging with that Gazprom subsidiary, the pipeline can't function. Just to be clear, what's the penalty for engaging? What's the, what is the sanction? Well, you, you get cut off from the U.S. financial system. Right, so you have a you choice. Do business, you do business with this company, you're cut off. Right. That's the penalty. Right. 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 Okay. I want, to, I want to get us into the immediate issues before the, right. the current conflict and sort, of and sort of how this kind of paves the way for, you know, the last, you know, for the Biden, what the Biden administration has, to, has had to deal with when it comes to Ukraine 
and, and Russia. So, so we have two rounds of congressionally mandated. These are not discretionary sanctions, not an option. These are mandatory. But there is a national, what's called a national security waiver, just in case there are, you know, extenuating circumstances, something changes that an administration, whether Democratic, Democratic or Republican, has the flexibility to act in the context of those different circumstances. They can suspend the sanctions. Right, or not apply them, right, to begin with. So we're in early 2021, and, you know, the Biden administration is coming in, and, you know, they're saying we're studying, we're studying the issue. We're, we're opposed to Nord Stream 2, and, and President Biden kept saying it's a bad deal. But at that point, it didn't go any, any further than that. So you might have thought um, Biden presidency on this specific issue may, might not be so bad. Look, I, I, I never could have imagined that any administration would waive two rounds of mandatory congressional sanctions, Democratic or Republican. So it wasn't even about Biden. Um, it was the, the idea that any administration would do something like that was almost unfathomable, even though it, it, the, technically the, the possibility existed. All right, so tell us, how did you lose that battle? There is a report due in February of 2021 to Congress that says, you know, which entities are engaged in sanctionable activity. And when that report hit Congress, uh, there were a lot of entities missing, a lot of companies. That you knew were, yeah. And so at that point, we said, oh, no. I mean, at that point, it, it slapped us in the face, you know, that this was a real possibility. Um, and we mobilized, you know. What'd you do? Well, we, we, we certainly started working with um, with our allies on Capitol Hill, especially Democrats, you know, like Gene Shaheen. Yeah. Then in May, the administration issues a report announcing that they're waiving the sanctions, meaning not implementing the sanctions. And we were absolutely shocked. How do they explain it to the extent that you have good relationships with the um, folks in the Biden administration? How do they explain it? And how did they explain it publicly? That it was too late. So we saw them slow rolling the sanctions, and then in May they, they argued it was too late. Like you're not going to kill this pipeline. Yeah. You're just going to kill the relationship with Germany. Correct. So this is an easy decision. But we knew that was wrong. We knew that was false. I'll, I'll tell you something that I heard today, literally before I got to dinner, from, from, from folks um, around President Zelensky. There is a narrative going around in Ukraine among very smart pro-American people that the United States is withholding uh, security assistance to Ukraine and real assistance because we want to use the Ukrainians to exhaust the Russians. Like just cannon fodder, basically. I try and convince that the Ukrainians uh, that this is uh, not true and gives too, cr too much credit to a lot of people. But this is just reflective of... of it doesn't you know. really make sense if you think about it. I mean, if you wanted to exhaust the Russians, you would, you would supply the Ukrainians with sophisticated weaponry to basically kill the invaders. Rather, it, the argument makes it sound like you want to... The, the, the argument of these people is that it's being calibrated. So, the, so that's again, slow. It's slow, it's being calibrated, it's being... Um, they're evaluating where the Ukrainians are and where the Russians are and how to maintain, you know, basically it's, the it's status a, it quo. It makes it sound like the Iran-Iraq war where we basically wanted, you know, well, we, 
we, we liked the fact that they were fighting each other. We didn't, right? Like that's what they're thinking. That's a really good analogy. Um, I think that's exactly the right analogy in terms of, and again, I, I don't think this is true. And I tell the Ukrainians this is not true. Um, and I hope I have some credibility with them to, to be able to tell them that. But I say this because it is reflective of where the Ukrainians are and how they feel right now. Yeah. Um, they are so, they believe that they're receiving so little support from the United States that they're starting to so come So little up. despite everything. Again, they, they, they feel that, that the United States is not doing all that, it's, that, it, that it can to defeat Russia. Yeah. Let me put it this way. The United States is not doing all that it can to defeat Russia. Well, that's true. We're in not. Order, but in order to allow the Ukraine for the war to continue. Um, and I, again, I, I can't emphasize how much I disagree with that. But I, I just want to point that out as, as, you know, we're very smart, logical, pro-American Ukrainians yeah. in and out of government are. I do think it's something that needs to be kind of noted. Yeah. It's indicative of, 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 of something in terms of where where they are and what they're thinking. Do they understand the U.S. position on the no-fly zone? Um, my, my sense is that they don't. I, I, I don't think that they, they, they do. They're going to continue to push, push for it, um, but... You know, my emphasis has been really on the security assistance side when I talk to people. Stingers right? and javelins. Stingler, stingers, javelins, and let's figure out the the fighter aircraft issue. So this is an example where you're in the position of explaining to your Ukrainian counterparts, like, what's feasible, rather than you being told by the Ukrainians, hey, you know, go up and talk to uh, Menendez and, uh, and Blinken. It's a, it's a two-way street. It, ha yeah. it has to be otherwise... Again, we're, we're not doing what, what my firm was, was founded if, to if do. If you went into Menendez's office or sources in the administration at the Pentagon or the State Department and made a case for a no-fly zone, you'd be laughed out. Or, like, that's, not, that's a non-starter. Look, I'm, it, I'm, it, te I'm telling you where the center of gravity is right now. But, but could that change? Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're literally seeing, um, and I don't think it's an overstatement. I yeah. really, really don't. A desire. Uh, or an ambition of, of, of genocide in Ukraine. I mean, they do want to depopulate certain areas of, of Ukraine. They've tried. Thankfully, they've failed. Yeah. Um, so the question is, you know, if this continues, I, I don't know. I don't know whether that shifts. But right now, the center of gravity, you know, on both sides of the aisle is against the no-fly zone. But I know that, that uh, President Zelensky and Foreign Minister Kuleba and others are going to continue to push, to push for that. Yeah. When you talk to your Ukrainian colleagues and they ask, well, the United States has a security commitment to defend Taiwan against a nuclear power, China. Why can't they do something similar with Ukraine? Yeah, they haven't made that comparison. Um, they understand that there are no, you know, ironclad legal uh, security guarantees that, that, that were not formal allies, but they do refer to the 1994 Budapest Memorandum. You know, um, and it's, look, it's a fair point. Yeah. Not for anyone who's interested in Ukraine or this conflict, but think about the implications for nuclear nonproliferation. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the lesson here is get a nuclear weapon. Yeah. I mean, this is the ultimate incentive. Well, that's been the lesson, frankly, in my opinion, since the invasion of Iraq. 
Well, fair enough, but but nothing has illustrated the utility of nuclear weapons more so than this conflict, because on both sides, the Ukrainians gave it up, they got invaded. The Russians have them, and we can't touch them. 100%. Yeah, yeah. My firm has taken this, what some people might consider this ferocious approach to, to, to this issue and these issues the way that it has, because... It's not just about Ukraine, it's also about our country why, why and our own say, interests. Why do you say people people describe your position as ferocious? Well, because they see that we haven't approached this as a typical lobby firm. It's more of a cause. It, yeah, it is. I yeah. mean, the fact that, again, we're working pro bono now, um, you know, and I thank our other clients for, you know, basically subsidizing us to, to, to work on Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it is reflective of the fact that, uh, again, it's it's our, you know, our judgment that this is a, a truly a historical inflection point. The the core um, principles with which we approached this this issue in this country over the last five years hasn't changed. I mean, we, we, we feel that we've we've done it the, you know, the right sort of way. Some people have listened. Others haven't. I think the, the latter category of folks are, you know, I hope that they're kind of reflecting on, on, on that. And, um, you know, if, when when it makes sense, again, without naming and shaming or pointing fingers, you know, we're going to we remind We love them. naming and shaming on this show, so well, feel free. I, uh, I'm, I'm trying hard not to. <laughs> One more Manhattan, I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. You think, do you think our FARA system is too generous, too... Um, the way it allows you to represent friends and foes alike, and it treats everyone the same? Fair. First of all, I think we should recognize that our lobbying system here in the United States, as imperfect as it is, is the gold standard yeah. globally. Look at what they have in Brussels and Germany. Nothing. The Wild West. They have a, a transparency registrar in Brussels where, you know, if you if you don't register under it, you can't have like formal access to the European Parliament or something like that. It, people but still have access. Nothing like the FARA registration process. No, nothing where you're identifying contacts, yeah. uh, dates, uh, topics. Yeah. That being said, I'll, I'll identify one fundamental problem. Money's fungible. So we, we don't allow foreign individuals, foreign actors to, to formally put money into our, our political system, and rightly so. Right. The lobbyists who have foreign clients can, and a lot of them, the big ones, spend 50% of their time raising money and giving money. So what I propose is that we have a, 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 a legislative framework, a law, that says, look, you can take on Russian and Chinese clients to create a category of strategic U.S. adversaries. Yeah. Within that category, without doubt, without doubt Russia and China. Yeah. To say to um, U.S. commercial actors, especially lobby firms, you can work with clients in those countries. You yeah. can, you, that is your, your, your God-given American right. Yeah. Um, but if you do, you can't contribute money to uh, people running, elected officials, and PACs, super PACs and other mechanisms. Yeah. So foreign agents, anyone registered as a foreign agent of one of these designated adversaries? Well, right now, some take- of them register under LDA, so it's not even... What's that? It's the Lobbying Disclosure Act. Oh, right, right. They don't register as foreign agents because they don't have to. It's not yeah. triggered. That's right. Yeah. But my, look, I go a bit further in saying if you're, yeah. if you're representing Russian or Chinese interests in some sort of way, you have an inherent conflict of interest. Right, right. And you shouldn't be allowed to yeah. give to donate money yeah. to campaigns, et cetera. So some people yeah. say, well, you know... 
Dan, uh, there's some constitutional issues with that. Um, and I say, well, maybe, maybe not. We need to recognize that we're living in a different global environment and our policy community, which does include the lobbying community, needs to recognize that as well. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, uh, I don't, you didn't know what you were in for, but I appreciate no, you spending no, no. this you, much time. You guys publish whatever it's you good. want to publish, get me in trouble. No, yeah, we'll only use the good, <laughs> we'll only use the good stuff. That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. Our producers are Cara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. Brooke Hayes is our senior producer. Jenny Ament is our executive producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. <laughs>